Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Soho Radio Podcast, showcasing some of the best broadcasts from our online radio station, right from the heart of Soho, London. Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mixcloud page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. Hi, I'm Maeve Doyle and this is A Private View. We are easing out of lockdown. Life is coming back into... Um... Well, back into people walking around town, looking like they're busy, going about their business, having meetings. They try to remember distancing. It sometimes happens. It sometimes doesn't. And some galleries are open, some aren't. I mentioned a bit about that on Friday's show. I think you know that the Tate's opening this week by appointment. So is the V&A. We're waiting to hear what the British Museum's doing. Um, ah, no, the Tate's opening on the 27th. So to keep up with current events, we are still reviewing documentaries. And I had the honor and the privilege of seeing something that I didn't know I would love half as much as I did. And it's quite amazing that it came out in 2019, stayed in circulation during lockdown and is available to watch after George Floyd. Uh, It's a, a documentary by Rebecca Shaw called White Riot. And it, yeah, I just got chills. And it talks about rock against racism Uh, And 1976, when the National Front were a political party in the UK and uh, Jack Webster was running the National Front and and, uh, had strong opinions about immigration, of people who were here who were not people he wanted here. Um, hmm. Yeah, the um that time was... (laughs) For all the right reasons, I'm confounded. It was not that long ago. I know people who were alive and who were at Rock Against Racism. It featured a lot of Soho, Red Saunders and his temporary hoardings magazine, uh, The Language of Politics. There was a woman named Irate Kate. The Rock Against Racism event was brought about and prompted by Eric Clapton's Birmingham tour, uh, where he supported the National Front. It seems outrageous, considering he wrote a song, or or didn't write a song, but covered a song called I Shot the Sheriff. Uh, There's a voiceover in I Shot the Sheriff, in White Riot, saying... Who wrote that, Eric? Not you, mate. I guess calling into question how you can pick and choose what you want from a culture. Uh, The documentary blends interviews with archival footage, new interviews with archival footage to create 
a kind of a, a surprising parallel to what's been going on here. It was a hostile environment. There was anti-immigration hysteria, and the National Front were marching down the streets. Uh, it was a happy ending. Thank God. It's a happy ending that's had a repeat performance, but it was a happy ending involving people like Tom Robinson, who's still on Radio 6, uh, The Clash, X-Ray Specs. Uh, please watch it. It's on Curzon Home Cinema. Here's X-Ray Specs and Oh Bondage Up Yours. Some people think little girls should be seen and not heard, but I think... Oh Bondage Up Yours! One day! Respects and no bondage up yours from the film documentary White Riot, uh, eerie how history repeats. Never forget that when you think that things happened before you were born and they don't matter, they matter. Always look at history to find the answers for the future. I'm sure I'm repeating someone who told me that once upon a time. I'm Maeve Doyle. This is a private view, a twice weekly, hour long arts program that I produce with Korshid Homi. He has his own show on Soho Radio. You can find it once a month. Uh, we talk about the art world, the art market, artists, collectors, curators, auction houses, critics, art dealers, gallerists. And today we're continuing our conversation about gallerists. The, the people who make up the art world are part of what keeps the business of art going. And amazingly, through lockdown, uh, the um, art market has boomed. And that's a surprise to everyone, but that's a fact. Uh, there are... Um, so many things that have happened in this contemporary art world, which is a hard subject at the best of times to get your head around. Uh, the story of the market of contemporary art is a narrative that's a wild ride and unpredictable. Um, it's made up with people who have fortunes around them and others who are entirely self-made and, uh, got into the art world through their own sort of sense of a moxie, I'd say. Uh, today I'm going to talk a little bit about Peggy Guggenheim, who was involved in the art world so early that she ensured it would never be a boy's story. Um, Peggy, I think, started Art of the Century, her gallery in New York in the 1940s. Um, and she she created a, a sense of content. I've got some distraction on my headphones. Sorry about that. That's why I keep pausing. I can hear this sort of party going on somewhere through my headphones, and I'm wondering if it can be dimmed down. Can we dim down the party that's going on in my headphones? Thanks, Korish. Oh, that's much better. Oh. Ah, I'll just take them off. Well, Peggy Guggenheim ensured that the art world would never be an all-boys story. Um, oh, uh, there's this crazy comment by an artist or a gallerist named Jack Kassman. And he said that all the artists do is create the work. It's up to the dealers to create the allure. Uh, it, it's... Um, 
It's uh, it's time for me to play a song. I'm going to play a song and come back to you. I've just get my head together after uh, after the noise. Here we go. Uh, that track came from a documentary called Dolly. Uh, Linda Perry from Four Non Blondes, who's now a record producer on par with Jay-Z and um, Quincy Jones, was talking about this 1967 song by Dolly Parton, who you must not enjoy underestimate uh, and these narratives with record producers or art dealers uh, um, bringing to life the artist's work and, and disseminating the information to the public is so important that song was about uh, a woman who killed herself on a bridge because she was pregnant at a time where social norms um, would shame someone. So that takes us from 1967 to the 70s to a documentary that's come out on Keith Haring recently uh, and the AIDS epidemic and back to art dealers where I started before I do apologize for getting distracted. Uh, it's great that the excitement of the city is coming back into boom, but it's wild because we've all been in lockdown and uh, in more controlled environments. So it's all part of the process. And I'm kind of pleased that it came to you live. Uh, that's us trying to readjust to life happening around us. I was talking about Peggy Guggenheim. Uh, 1947, she was ready to leave the States and go back to Venice. She was an elegant woman. She had a gallery on West 57th Street. She just divorced Max Ernst. He had become involved with Dorothea Tanning. Her gallery, The Art of the Century, was doing incredibly well, but she was bored. Peggy was bored sitting in a gallery all day. And if you've ever sat in a gallery all day, it's mind-numbingly boring. Uh, I, I'm sorry to say that, and I don't mean to offend anyone, but when the world is happening around you and you're in a gallery, although the word sounds great, although it conjures up images of activity, it's just four white walls, a white cube, so to speak. Uh, and Peggy had had enough of it. Uh, Post-war peace was secured in Europe, and she headed back. But before she did... Peggy Guggenheim needed to place her artists with another dealer. Now, Peggy was aristocracy. Well, wait, not aristocracy. She was a trust fund kid. Her father died on the Titanic when she was only young and gave her a lot, a lot of money. Uh, she put a, most of it into the arts. And as I said when I spoke before the Dolly Parton track, Peggy was a trailblazer and ensured that the art world wouldn't be an all-boys club by getting in on it early. Peggy was the contemporary art world. Now, the person who got into it by moxie was Betty Parsons. I'm getting to the connection between Peggy's artists, her going back to Europe, Jackson Pollock, 
Frank Stella, Ad Reinhardt, the Abstracts Expressionists, Barnett Newman, and Betty Parsons. Betty Parsons opened her gallery a few blocks away from Peggy Guggenheim's. Now, Betty Parsons was American. She had a family whose wealth and business was wiped out during the Depression. Uh, Her education was good, but there was no money. And in 1946, she opened her gallery close to Peggy's. It was financed by school friends, a group of women called the Conticas. And they believed in their friend and helped her pay for the gallery. So when Peggy Guggenheim was leaving, it was only natural that she would give all her artists to Betty Parsons. The only artist they couldn't agree on was Jackson Pollock. The problem was uh, Jackson was a handful to manage, and this goes into what a gallerist does. There are times when artists have uh, issues, let's say, whether that's issues with substances like Basquiat, uh, issues with alcohol like Pollock, issues with women like Picasso. I mean, I could go on and on about the issues that artists have, but Pollock's issues were um, alcohol, poverty, and a wild personality change when he was drinking. So Peggy Guggenheim had Pollock on a 150 to 300 pound monthly stipend. That stipend meant that she had the first pick of all of the work that came out of his studio. Uh, He could buy them back when he earned the money. So it's not the greatest deal for the artist, but it was one that they took. Uh, Betty Parsons couldn't afford to keep Pollock's stipend uh, and didn't really like him, but she did notice that his vitality had something to it, and to miss out on that vitality would be remiss of her as a dealer. So her point of view on Pollock was you never know with him if he was going to come up and kiss you or throw something at you. He was volatile, unpredictable, but very exciting. Uh, Kind of a foreshadowing to punk rock. So Peggy reached an agreement that she would keep Pollock on a stipend, paid by by her, and Betty Parsons would take him into the gallery. Uh, the, there was commissions and 10% and all the other things that go along with that. But these two women secured the abstract expressionists for the rest of American art history, and I completely applaud them for it. That's before Leo Castelli came into the picture. Leo Castelli was known as the elegant Leo Castelli. People believe that his wife, uh, Eliana Sonneban, is the one who uh, influenced him into the art world. I'm not sure about that. You hear different stories from different artists. Uh, But she had the confidence, whereas Leo was uh, perhaps a flaneur, perhaps a dilettante. It was a time when Europeans thought it was vulgar to work for a living or to make money. Uh, But Leo had moved from Europe after the war to New York, and he opened the Castelli Gallery. I uh, had the pleasure in 2019, September, to speak to Mimi Rosenquist. Uh, James Rosenquist was one of Leo Castelli's artists, and Mimi Rosenquist met James Rosenquist while she was working for Leo Castelli. 
The current to Leo Castelli, in my opinion, although some say it's Larry Gagosian because Leo and Larry knew each other, but the person who sort of embodies the principles of Leo Castelli, from my point of view, is Taddeus Ropek. And Taddeus has James Rosenquist's estate now with Mimi. So here's Mimi Rosenquist in our uh, series about gallerists and what they do. You'll hear her talk about Leo Castelli. It's approximately 60 years ago today that James Rosenquist decided to stop painting billboards and marquees and dedicate himself to a career as a fine artist. And I think his work is more relevant now than ever before. Uh, The mysteries of why that is, I'm hoping to uncover with Mimi Rosenquist today and Sarah Bancroft, who curated the 2003... 2004 retrospective at the Guggenheim called James Rosenquist. Hello, both of you. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure. And I'm certain that you're uh, stretched for time and energy, considering your opening is tonight and you've been hanging the show and greeting press all day. It's been busy. How are you, <laughs> how are you feeling? Oh, great, really. Congratulations on the hang. The work looks terrific in Ellie House, that incredible building on Dover Street. How how are you feeling about it? Oh, it's beautiful. Don't you think, Sarah? It's just... um... It's gorgeous. I think the the building married with the artwork is really... We couldn't ask for more. And is it the same show that you had at the Guggenheim? Oh, no. It's very different. A a retrospective at any museum will be very comprehensive, covering work from, you know, Jim's career in the 60s all the way to, at that point, um, 2000, 2003. So as someone who runs the foundation or the estate, tell me exactly what it is that you do. The foundation, the James Rosenquist Foundation, is devoted to promoting research, scholarship, and exhibition of of his career, his work, his oeuvre, if you will. And that's really our calling. And of course, the estate, which is separate from the foundation, has a similar mission and goal. And it does. Um, The foundation also has a, a modest philanthropic uh, part that we're, you know, trying to develop. And the estate and the foundation do work in tandem. And really, um, it's all about making sure Jim's work is seen. And also, the story of his work is known, because he, you know, was very politically active. And Really, that hasn't been emphasized in a lot of the exhibitions um, until recently. So we are trying to talk about that a bit. Now, I talked about that a bit today at the gala, like before I left to come here. And I, what is that about? I mean, looking back at his work and seeing the political and the environmental and the criticism on mass consumerism, um, and it almost, that's what I meant when I said it's almost more relevant now than it was. There was a prophetic feel to it. Well, that's, I mean, I think that really sums it up. He seemed to be able to see ahead somehow. And also some of the same problems and uh, we we were having back in the 60s are, we're having today, only they're amplified. So um, in his work, you see politics. Sometimes it's hard to read it. And, you know, you don't see it right away. And other paintings like F-111, it's very evident. An anti-war painting and um, or Forest Ranger, which is hanging in the gallery. Um, against, it was a protest against the Vietnam War. There's no way for you to be able to answer this question 
but I want you to try. Do you think he would have the freedom to speak his mind as openly today as he could at the time he was painting the pieces he was painting? I think so. Um, Sarah, what are your thoughts mm -hmm. on that? I think that's the beauty of all artists is they take the initiative and they open space where there is no space to make comments. And Jim was so great at that. Not only was he a painter's painter, so he appealed on a very formal level to his colleagues and contemporaries and to collectors and curators and whatnot, but he was questioning what was happening. He was very responsive to the times. And that's also why the work is so fresh, because not only was he prescient, he was responsive, but the work continues to deliver formally and conceptually. When I posted, I took a picture of the Rosenquists today with my dog, Stella. <laughs> and within a second, a graduate from the Slade School of Art named Lo Poder said, this is the first piece that I cried in front wow. of. And it was <laughs> oh, mm -hmm. so beautiful. Uh, and I th I've known him for a few years. I went to his grad show. I will investigate. I didn't have time, but it moved him to tears. Have you heard that before about pieces of, of Jim's work? Yes. 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 I mean, I think um, Jim puts a lot of emotion into his works. I mean, not only his intellect, but his heart really goes in. And he is um, talking about topics in his work that really affect everybody. And that particular painting, The Light That Won't Fail, is um, really about every person's life in some ways and the comb he saw as um, kind of bars mm -hmm. and something that is uh, something that is a simple domestic item like a comb and yet to him it in this painting it really symbolized the kind of staticness of um, domestic life sometimes mm -hmm. when you feel trapped in a routine that just continues and continues mm -hmm. and it's something that is contrary to the American dream that was kind of promised to everybody in the 1950s. It's like the claustrophobia of our quotidian existence and routines and yes. demands. If you, if you uh, aren't holding this picture in front of you, there's a comb at the, the top to create almost a theatrical curtain coming down over a domestic scene of, of a man sitting in his living room and a woman looking up into the light it feels like and this is a retrospective remark it feels like madman or a scene from madman mm -hmm. which is quite curious because jim started his career in advertising is that is that correct Absolutely. you're keying into some important points because the image of the woman she's exhaling it's from a cigarette advertisement and of course the man pulling on his socks that's a sock advertisement and the comb of course is i think he drew that but it's a very well-known brand of comb. So he was using goody. very recognizable. Yes, it? exactly. <laughs> using these very recognizable images to convey completely disparate messages. And and when you can find meaning in the simple things that are part of everyday life, that's it's it, it's easy to be important if you're finding difficult theat you know, theory based academic solutions. He's finding it in dime store products uh, that takes me to the relationship with Andy Warhol to the relationship with Rauschenberg uh, Jasper Johns who worked for Leo Castelli I did <laughs> I almost won a day. second show on that <laughs> <laughs> 
yes, what there. was that like and how did that huh. come about if if i mean leo castelli revolutionized he did he did um well, i was very lucky i had worked at the whitney museum for three and a half years and then i wanted to work in a gallery downtown and a friend of mine david whitney said they're looking for somebody and you've got to take the job it's you know you'll regret it if you don't um and i said sure i'd love it and well leo was wonderful because he really felt deeply about his artists and their work and he was truly um involved you know in in their intellectual life in their personal lives he was really more than just an art dealer he was a friend and incredibly kind lovely to all of us who work for him as well. It was a treat to see the passing parade in the Castelli Gallery. <laughs> the passing parade, which includes Rauschenberg, Johns, absolutely, Meredith Monk, absolutely, um, Merce Cunningham. I, I, I think he said he didn't have the energy to take on Basquiat. Is that urban myth or true? Um, it could have been true, because um, uh, Jean Michel came on the scene when it was everything was changing and uh, Leo did show David Sally and uh, Julian Schnabel and I, I, you mentioned Sally and I've been holding back <laughs> I know mm -hmm. the, the the comparisons are mm -hmm. undeniable can we talk about that later when I let you finish your sentence sure yeah no, I mean uh, um, but it was it was a wonderful time but it was a very different time and I think for Leo his core artists from a certain period were what he felt truly passionate about, and that would be um, Jasper, Jim, Anna Bob, um, Lee Bontecu. Uh, he also loved Marisol, although I don't think he ever showed her. But uh, Bob who? Um, Robert Rauschenberg. Robert right. Rauschenberg, yes, sorry. Uh, you, <laughs> this is very... And intimate they were your friends yes yeah. and bob was a really close friend of jim's which um was wonderful and they they really kept that friendship going for um all their lives and and they it was wonderful to see them together they loved each other it was a great friendship and with this uh, book came out this year called warhol and basquiat and it's about artistic friendships and people who may not seem like appropriate friends but there's something in in their creative pursuits that makes them more alike than anyone exactly and you're saying that's what bob and robert and james had i think really the artists of that generation seemed to have an immense respect for each other bob and jim respected each other andy warhol and jim respected each other although they were really different kinds of people and uh there was, and you know, the same with the whole group, and it was a smaller art world, so you really knew everybody, and you went to all the openings, and everyone had studio visits. So it was just, you could manage that. Now it's so big, and it still happens, but not, there are many different worlds rather than one. Mimi, did you go to art school? Um, no, I didn't. I didn't. How did the art world open itself up to you, um, and, and how did you meet Jim? Well... Um, I met Jim when I worked at Leo Castelli, and he came in one day, and I'd already been working for Castelli for about a year, and he came in and was having lunch with Leo, and he said, uh, hello, my name's Jim Rosenquist, and and are you free for lunch? Because you should come 
with us. And of course, Leo said, no, she can't. <laughs> so, but then we later did go out. So it was um, the classic girl behind the gallery desk story. <laughs> but I know something, and I'm going to put you on the spot here. Okay. He wouldn't have been the first artist who asked you out. <laughs> I'm looking at you, and, yeah. and you are absolutely stunning. Oh, and I've worked in galleries, so nice. and artists love flirting. They do. So I'm sure. Why did you say yes to him and not to all the other artists who would have asked you out? Well, you know, I liked him right away. Did and, you? Yes, and he was very persistent also. So, um, uh, So I just... Went for Do you it. know what you liked about him, or was it a chemical thing? I think it was a chemical thing, honestly. He's, um, we both are, have Scandinavian backgrounds, and there was something so familiar to um, me about him. So I don't know if that was it or. This thing called love, we'll never know. <laughs> exactly. Sarah, can I talk to you Absolutely. about your background yes. and how you got involved in, in this world of. James Rosenquist. Mm -hmm. Did you go to art school? I Do did. You paint? I'm an art historian. I literally finished my graduate degree at the Courtauld and two days later started working on Jim's show in New York at the Guggenheim. They pulled me. Um, what does from it grad mean school. they pulled you? Did they? Well, I had. I had. It's true. I had interned at the Guggenheim and then left and gone, moved to London and gone to grad school. And um, after finishing one of my grad degrees there, you know, I had this opportunity. I was asked by the people I'd interned with if I would accept working on this show, that show, or would I work with Walter Hopps with no, Jim? Please yes. tell yes, people yes. about Walter Hopps oh, and about how many yes. glasses he wore at once. <laughs> um, Just for a minute and then get back sure. to it. So Walter, preeminent, amazing American curator who um, was curating, co-curating Jim's show at the time. And so I was pulled into this project. I had interned with him on the Rauschenberg show. So that's also why they thought I might be able to work with him. And it proved to be true. We actually, we were kind of an odd triplet, Jim. You're very polite Walter. because you're looking at me. But every <laughs> she time knows you do, all this. we can't hear you. <laughs> oh, I'm she, so sorry. That's why we I were, wear these because yes, I move around too much. We were something of an odd triplet with like, you know, these old established art world dudes and this younger woman. But I think we worked quite well together. And Walter and I became very, very close. And he really uh, helped establish my career. But more importantly, having worked on Jim's show for five years from start to finish, from the moment I started it to the moment it closed, essentially, you know, you're either going to love or hate the art and or the artist. And I only grew to love the work. And Jim, as a friend and an artist and just an incredible human, more and more. And that relationship continued. And essentially, he eventually asked me to be the head of his foundation. So you're analytical. I've spotted that. You probably know exactly why you grew to love him. What were the principal key mm -hmm. qualities of Rosenquist that made you love him? His, I'm going to talk about his artwork. I think that's what you're asking. Yeah. His artwork is distinct from the other pop artists because it's not as immediately direct or graphic, not like Warhol or Lichtenstein, which is very graphic. And there's something very sophisticated and subtle about it. The mystery pulls you in. The paintings seep out slowly over time. They're very esoteric and evocative. They're emotional and rigorous. And... If you can live with a painting and work with a painting and install a painting over five years and still love it and grow to see something new every time you're hanging it, that's a powerful painting. I like that answer. Uh, do you think 
James Rosenquist has enjoyed the same fame and recognition and legacy as Andy Warhol, as uh, Jasper Johns, as Robert Rauschenberg. Um, Certainly their careers started in the same place. They were on the same level. They were promoted to the same degree. I think because Jim's work is a little more esoteric, he, he had and has a different trajectory. But what we're seeing is, in a way, just as Rauschenberg's career was recuperated later in his life, the same has happened and continues to happen for Jim. This beautiful, gorgeous retrospective that happened in Europe just a couple of years ago at Museum Ludwig and at Aarhus, or in Aarhus at Aros Museum did so much for Jim's career. But of course, in Europe, and particularly on the continent, he's so widely respected. He's, his, the holdings at Moderna Museet, at Museum Ludwig are quite rich, or you know, really important, iconic paintings at the um, Centre Georges Pompidou. So I think in terms of the museum and curator world, he is seen you know, part and parcel with his contemporaries. He doesn't necessarily have the same name recognition amongst people walking down the street, but I think that's starting to change. I'd like to ask why the title of this show is Visualizing the 60s. Well, um, Visualizing the 60s, I think we were trying to really show Jim as an experimenter and show him working in the 60s and doing a lot of new things. It was a decade where he tried, you know, he worked with three-dimensional objects, he painted on mylar, he made um, immersive room art, and he tried a lot of different things that he hadn't been doing before. So it was a reflection of the time he was working, most definitely. So I think that's why we chose Visualizing the 60s, because it, it really reflects the creativity and experimentation of the time. And that experimentation and time has similarities to now. I'm trying to think what we haven't touched on. I'm so excited about seeing the show. And I guess, uh, Sarah, I'll start with you, because I see that there's clearly I mean David Sally must have been affected by this work and so would have Eric Fischel and the 80s artists do you want to expand on that I can a bit I think it's you're stating the obvious that painters not only were in the 70s and 80s and 90s and to the present day looking at his work he's such an important painter but also his skill as a billboard painter and then moving into um, his own fine art career was, his facility was so incredible that he absolutely influenced, you know, David and Fischl and, and so many artists. And Mimi, you might have more firsthand experience with some of this, you know, having worked in the gallery. Um, so I'm really curious to hear what Mimi has to say about some of those 80s relationships. I'm so curious to hear about what Mimi says <laughs> about so many things, because as an artist's wife... You seem happy. And, and, and the kind of stereotype is that they're tortured and they're amused and they're sort of used to inspire. What was it like being the partner to someone so dynamic and involved in the... Not only were you working at Castelli and seeing everything that sort of formed the art scene in the 80s, internationally, I would dare to say, uh, but you were married to one of the leading artists at the time. Well, you know, it's funny. In the beginning, when you go into a relationship, you don't think about those things you just kind of think about the human connection 
But I, I have to say that um, Jim was amazing from the get-go. He had an immense amount of energy and more energy than you can imagine and really never still, always working. And his happiest place um, was in the studio, absolutely. He just loved working. But I completely got that. I really understood that. And what would might have been a problem for other people, I knew you know, he had to really just turn off his normal life really and go into the studio and and think and work and and that's you know that would be his first thing always and it, but that, that does, that's a struggle for some partners to know that yeah. the first relationship for an artist is with the creative process yes, but I, I really understood that so and I don't really know why it you know I, I got it and um, I write about art so I was busy with my projects too, but it's a different thing to, and he was wired differently. He had a completely unique outlook and he also was always looking for strangeness and mystery and trying to explore things that no one had explored before. And he, in his paintings, he really loved to end up with a mystery. He didn't want any questions answered. He just wanted each painting to continue his exploration. And it was really inspiring, honestly, to see him create these things because it all came out of his mind. It's so authentic, really doing something that no one else was doing. It's completely his vision all the way and very personal. A lot of his personal feelings, a lot of his personal life, are you know, there. that's in the painting. Politics, that's in the painting. Um, critiques of the military-industrial complex that's in the painting. I mean, it's full of just so much. It's full of each decade that he works. He kind of represents it and looks a little bit ahead. So he was just a little ahead of the game in his... He sensed what was going to happen in a way. Like, and He did paintings about the environment being in trouble, you know, early on. And he always really... Um, seemed to know what we were doing wrong and what we were doing right. It was a strange, he had a, just an uncanny way of perceiving things that were a little bit in the future. If he was here today in 2019, what would he be focused on? And I know it's hypothetical. Well, I think he would be making some very political paintings, and it's such a politically charged time. It's such a difficult and dangerous time uh, for all our governmental structures and our environment. And oh, he'd have plenty to say. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm sure of that. I don't, you know, I think he'd be focusing on all of it, really. You know, he didn't like to leave anything out. <laughs> Sarah, what I do you agree. do? You? Oh, absolutely. Jim often said the hardest thing to find or to have is an idea. For an artist, the hardest thing to have is an idea. And for him, the ideas were all around him. And once he had one, you know, he would call me up when he was working on a new series and kind of keep me informed. But he wouldn't always tell me exactly what the series was going to look like. It was this idea he had that was fomenting and festering. And I think very much this moment we're in right now, internationally, this kind of insanity would have fueled him to respond in an incredibly unexpected way because he always responded but it, he came in sideways to reveal something 
in an unexpected way. It was always um, approachable. I mean, that's the beauty of an artist. If they're going to critique something, to do it in a way where you, you can swallow it without feeling like you're choking, without even knowing that it's something that maybe you don't want to swallow that pill. He was so good at that. The insanity of the prices in the art market at the moment have brought a lot of people into the art world that probably weren't in the art world when you were working at Leo Castelli. And yeah. they even they weren't in the art world when I started. Uh, new people are kind of muscling their way in and new markets are opening up. And as a result of that, there's an in, I'm going to be so bold and say there's an insanity around the pricing. I think Gerhard Richter had said this is more than a house. You know, yes. there's a lot of um, mad money and mega dealers and the whole boom thing, that book that came out by Michael Schneerson earlier this year. What do you think Jim would say about auction prices and and freeholds and uh, collectors who are collecting as investments and transparency versus opaque and there's a lot in that as well well there is and the art market is you know such a crazy mystery really it's and why you know some paintings go for just an insane amount of money and others don't and it's you know there's all kinds of reasons that happens however i think um i think for jim he wasn't really so focused on the art market or the auction prices. I mean, if someone, he sold most of his paintings when he, when he made them. He was lucky to sell them when he made them. So, But to see a painting he made in the 60s go for a whole lot of money later, um, he, you know, he would just kind of shrug. Although he and uh, Robert Rauschenberg did work on getting... Um, what was that called? Art, their artist rights. Yes, the artist rights. Um, I can't remember that. Oh, yeah, no, I know what you're that. talking about. Through yes. the auction house where they get a percentage. Yes. Yeah, I think. And so that was something. That's great. That's because still artists aren't getting that. So that was right. early influence. Legislation sure. in the 70s they were pushing right. for. And exactly. I don't think it succeeded, but they worked really hard to try to push through. And the artist That's rights. amazing. Mm -hmm. And the impetus for that push was they saw so many artists that had success early on and then suddenly the early paintings were going for a lot of money and these artists had not continued to be successful so I thought it was great that Bob and Jim really teamed up and went to the Senate and lobbied for artist rights so I think it's great too yeah unfortunately it hasn't happened but <laughs> we'll see there's always the future I guess Let's talk about philanthropy. What does the foundation do for young and emerging artists? Well, do you want to talk about sure. this? Sure. So the foundation at present Sorry. is not fully operational. We do operate, but that's a legal status. Um, but essentially, Jim defined very clearly for us that he wanted to support young and emerging artists and artist materials. And I think that's an initiative we hold very dear and close to our hearts. He also was really involved in... Um, children's health initiatives as well. So those are the missions we will carry forward on Jim's behalf. Will you be at Taddeus Ropek this evening? Absolutely. Oh, yes. <laughs> we <laughs> will. Pleasure. Can people just walk up to you and ask you questions about everything there? Oh, absolutely. I know they can. I yes. saw you both in action this morning. <laughs> um, any last words before I let you continue with what's going to be a busy day? 
Well, we're thrilled to be in London, aren't we? And Absolutely thrilled. The, the show looks beautiful. I hope everyone comes to see it. It's um, amazing. And thank you for having us it's on. It's an honor and a pleasure. And if you're back in London, please come again, both thank of you. you. Well, that was um, an incredible moment in 2019 with Mimi Rosenquist uh, from the Rosenquist Foundation and Sarah Bancroft, who works there as well. And it reminds me of another situation we had in 2019 when uh, Donald Warhola came to talk to us about his uncle Andy Warhola. And uh, these foundations do keep the artist's work in the public imagination. Uh, the role of the collector, the role of the dealer, the role of the gallerist, the role of the family and the estate. Uh, history is made, and that happens because people make it happen. Uh, it's a law, it's a big thing to say, but things happen because people put effort into making them happen, whether that's a form of activism or a form of changing law or um, of of there's so many different ways to get to get uh, to get things you believe in noticed. Uh, back to Peggy Guggenheim, one of the things she did before she left. The States for Venice was she gave away 18 of her Pollocks. And I think by the time she came back from Venice to the States, she possibly regretted doing that. Uh, as a dealer, though, to keep things in track, and this goes with Donald Warhola and Mimi Rosenquist, Peggy did something amazing for Jackson Pollock early on. Peggy uh, put his work in, I think it was the MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art in the States. And it, I think they paid something like 1,800 pounds for it, $1,800 for it, something ridiculous. No, $600 for it, a piece called She-Wolf. So what a dealer does for an artist is a lot. It's an antagonistic relationship, but that antagonism is pushing people to their boundaries and I think sometimes dealers we talk to JD Mallet we talk to Donald Warhola of the estate we talk to Mimi Rosenquist I work at galleries sometimes there is Taddeus Ropex David Zwerner Larry Gagosian sometimes dealers get a bad rap Mary Boone's in jail for goodness sakes maybe she's out by now and maybe the chat's all just part of it but it is essentially what people accomplish and I think uh, the dealers like Peggy Guggenheim like Betty Parsons like J.D. Mallet like um, Taddeus Ropek who started with Joseph Boyce the dealers do get the information of the artists out and having a unique understanding into an artist's psyche, what makes them tick, supporting them. And yes, making your 10%, Leo Castelli, 10%, um, is all part of it. I am absolutely touched by the love story between Mimi Rosenquist and James Rosenquist. And when you have a business story that's also a love story, that's just a manifestation of all the best things. In honor of that, I'm going to play you this song by the Monkees. Have a listen.
That was the monkeys in P.O. Box. Different days and different love affairs, but uh, you've been listening to A Private View, an hour-long show about the art world on Friday's show. Tune in at 10 a.m. And I will have... Uh, well, I met an artist named Scooney, and he won't come on air yet, but I have had an amazing question and answer over the phone with him, and I'm hoping to get him in and on the show. Uh, he will talk about the way that fantasy and reality uh, becomes merged when you work in special effects in the film industry, films like Black Hawk Down. Um, it does influence his work. I look forward to my second chat with Scooney, whose real name is Tristan Schoonard. I hope I said the last name right. As I said, you know me. It's a private view. I'm signing off now. Thank you, Kurashet Homi, for producing. Uh, thank you for listening. Please subscribe if you are interested in hearing this again. And in honor of the documentary White Riot, I am going to play you out with I Shot the Sheriff by the Whalers. I shot the sheriff. Good idea.